This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. In the second part of Soundbites, we're going to continue our conversation we started two weeks ago about veganism with Nigel Wright and Brenda Sanders. But first, we'll talk about a report released last week by the City of Baltimore, the Baltimore Development Corporation, the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and the Baltimore City Department of Planning. It's the 2015 Food Environment Map Report, a resource meant to inform policy planning around food in Baltimore, particularly to improve access to healthy and affordable food for people who live in food deserts. The report says that one in four Baltimore City residents live in a food desert, and nearly one in three children do. Joining us to discuss the food environmental map are Holly Freistadt, Baltimore City Food Policy Director at the Office of Sustainability, Amanda Brzezinski, Mapping Program Manager at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and Joy Smith, Community Liaison for the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. And let me just say, as a, as, as a full disclosure, that, of course, we do work and have done work with the Senator, Center for Livable Future on a number of issues over the years, and we'll continue, just full disclosure, so people know that that <clears throat> exists, the relationship exists. So where do we start? Let me start, Holly. T- talk about this, this, uh, this latest development and what it said about Baltimore being, uh, giving this uh, title. What this report really does is it really goes into a much more detailed approach, looking at strategies, policies, and priorities by neighborhood so that we can understand how to address effectively food deserts in Baltimore City by council districts, by neighborhoods, and also by the city. So what does it tell us? What is is the report saying to us? So um, first it defines food deserts as areas that uh, have limited access to healthy food. um, And we can go into the methodology later if you'd like to, but... um, this is a real public health issue in Baltimore, um, and while we're laying out the problem, this report actually takes the time to go into the city's uh, strategies to address the problem as well. Um, so it's it's a good sign that the city is taking this seriously and has invested the time and effort into partnering with the center um, to work on these issues. So, uh, Joyce, we were talking before you went there. You've seen many reports come and go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your sense of what this is telling us? And what we, what we don't already know. One of the things that is telling for me is the people outside of the city, the, the leaders, the folks who are making the decisions, that there are, um, there are problems, but we have to make, come up with solutions. And I just think, how are we going to come up with the solutions? Accessibility is an issue. As you, if you look at the health and the diets, it is. But it's also, for me, this report is like a ray of hope. It's just not certain folks talking about a conversation. They have a tool that you can show folks that this is what is happening in this councilmatic difference district, and this is happening in this councilmatic district. Because if you look at Coldstream, Montebello, you look at Southwest Baltimore, we share a lot of the same thing. When the, the um, separation from the city, when the flight, urban flight came, both of those communities uh, were impacted the same. So this kind of bring. It's not a good topic, but it brings awareness, and it's a tool that can be used to help address 
Well, I'm going to come changes. back. I'm curious what you think, what that tool might be in a few minutes, and hear what you say that is in both kind of politically and organizing what has to happen to change it. But I mean, so, but we've known there are food deserts here, and the, and the mapping process has kind of really laid it out. I mean, I think people don't realize, in some ways, um, Amanda, what you see, when people hear the word mapping, so what, right? Mm-hmm. What does that really mean? Well, and so the center has been looking at the issue of food deserts since 2009, um, and it's really become part of the national conversation. The USDA has now a food desert report. They have a food desert locator website. Um, but it's still kind of just scratching the surface, and we wanted to dig deeper. And so this time around, we've developed a methodology we think is is giving us a much more accurate, realistic picture of um, the issue on the ground. It reflects the neighborhoods we know from site that look like they don't have access to healthy food, they're showing up on the map, um, so confirming what we know on the ground. And so we just feel like having um, a better understanding and this kind of more nuanced understanding gives us a better opportunity to address the issue. So from the map's perspective, what, is it, what, what, what are the commonalities it's showing in the neighborhoods? Since these are diverse neighborhoods all across the city, mm-hmm. east side, west side, south side, southwest. Sure. When, um, so it's easiest to talk about this by explaining the four factors. And so we look at areas that are low income. They have limited access to uh, vehicles. Uh, they're far farther from a supermarket. And they have lo- low supply of healthy food. And so for an area to be qualified as a food desert, it has to meet all four of those factors. So every, every area across the city that's a food desert is suffering from all of those disadvantages. So, so, all right, so now that we know this, I mean, we, and we have known this, but now that it's mapped out and we can physically see where it is, so now what? I mean, what is that? So, what is that? So, I mean, where, where do we take that information? Because we've always supposed that was the case. The map is showing it's the case. So, this report, half of the report is dedicated to the food desert retail strategy, really looking at a solution base to food access and reducing food deserts in Baltimore. And in order to really address food access, there's many ways to do so. One of the strategies is to retain and attract grocery stores. The first step the city has taken is that we got state-enabling legislation for personal property tax credit for attraction and retention of grocery stores in and near food deserts. So that was the first step that needed to have happen. Now the city is starting to work on the city legislation. So that's one piece. And what would be the city legislation? What does that one piece mean? So what we're really looking at is to have – a personal property tax. Personal property is everything you can shake out of a grocery store. That's all your refrigeration. And that's very expensive for the store owners. And so this is one tax credit for new stores to come into the city near food deserts or for our existing stores for a retention strategy to be able to do renovations that they may not have done previously. And so what's really important to the food desert retail strategy is that's only one of five components. There is no one solution to food desert. It's not a matter of getting grocery stores in every neighborhood. Some places it will be perfect. Other places we need to be looking at public markets, Holland's Market, Northeast Market, um, Avenue Market. Those markets have the potential, and this is in the report, of becoming a supermarket alternative, providing all the foods needed to reduce food deserts and increase food access. So that's the second part is around public markets. Another part is looking at all your corner stores, all your convenience stores. That is what's populating our city. We can walk to them very easily, um, and there's great opportunity. There's healthy corner stores. There's around 20 or so, um, some with Johns Hopkins, some with um, Baltimore Health Department, Baltimore Market. 
um, and the growing trend, and we're going to see some policy changes in the next several years, that's really going to change the landscape of healthy food mandated in some cases in order for those stores to have food stamps or SNAP. So, I mean, uh, that's, and, and of course, there's the, the reality that at least 30% of Baltimoreans, if not more, don't have automobiles. And we have a transportation system that's not, that's not the best, <laughs> to put it politely. So you just set me up perfectly. So the <laughs> fifth part to the food desert retail strategy is transportation. It is a key piece that we really need to delve into in a much deeper way is our transportation strategy. When is it appropriate to get people to food and food to people? You know, we have the Baltimore Virtual Supermarket, which is phenomenal for um, meeting the needs of seniors, disabled, and public housing sites. But we also have to, when you talk to grocery stores and supermarkets, we have to talk about um, bus routes, getting employees uh, to the stores to be able to get to work on time and also to get people conveniently to and from the store with all their groceries, et cetera. Joyce, um, so as we've talked before now, you've been rolling with this for over 20 years. Yes. And I see an uh, uh, additional part being that um, I'm a community leader and I'm the community liaison for Hopkins. And Southwest Baltimore partnered with Hopkins when we did the food assessment studies. And when you talk about the transportation, one of the things as a community leader that I'm looking at, and I want to be involved with this whole movement, is looking at the churches. We have a lot of churches that have church buses. Looking at the tools and really kind of going back to how we used to do things as a community, not just looking at the political and the state, but looking at how can we get these different partners in place because if transportation is an issue, but also the awareness. When we did the food assessment study for Southwest Baltimore, we learned that people, even though transportation is an issue, was traveling to 29 different stores outside of Southwest Baltimore. So that meant people had some wherewithal and how they dip, right. were doing things. But we, we have to look at the tools that we have, especially in your low-income communities, because it's about the relationship. Some processes may work. Virtual supermarkets, it, do, it works for the public housing. It works for seniors, but it may not work for families. You know, corner stores, one of the issues in southwest Baltimore, when we hear them talking about putting it in the corner stores, well, what happens if it doesn't sell, where is the legislation? What is going to be in place? Because certain store owners that are not going to want to throw the stuff away and poor people not going to buy bad stuff, you know. So there, there are some other like on the ground issues that I think needs to be involved with making yeah, some decisions. I mean, I, even when you talk about corner stores, I mean, one of the one of the one of the roadblocks is that to sell fresh food or even frozen food means you have to have a physical infrastructure in the store to have those things to be able to do. And that's a huge investment for somebody who sells canned goods and, and, and liquor and pretzels and, and cigarettes. And processed foods. And processed foods and the lottery. I mean, that's, you know, it's not, that's an investment. And and we, I would it, even say, too, that um, the people that are shopping at those stores, they need to have the materials at home, the infrastructure at home to use those foods properly as well, which is kind of beyond this report, but it's another issue. I think there's a whole level of education amongst community members about what is healthy food and um, why it's important and how to work with it and incorporate it into your diet. 
That should be partner or part and parcel with a lot of this work. So uh, I have a lot of questions here. Let me start with this one that's been in my head. The, one of them, when we talk about bringing um, supermarkets and other grocery outlets into communities, one of the things I, I saw the letter to the editor this morning saying that as long as we have the container tax, it's going to um, it's going to deter supermarkets from moving in. And Santoni's, of course, claiming the reason they closed their stores was because of the container tax and people in dispute and debate if that was the real reason, but that's the reason they gave. And the other part is that I've heard from other retailers um, is that is that they um, that because of the way food stamps with SNAP works and coming in once a month that they can't sustain themselves because of the way SNAP, the SNAP program works. Um, and makes it difficult to con- con- to, to continue a store. So let me just, there's another issue as well. Let me just stop there. I'm going to speak on that one. So we've been working, the city's been working with the state for around a couple years now to really look at this issue of SNAP and how it's distributed. So, for example, if your last name starts with an A, you will get your SNAP on the 6th of the month. If your last name starts with a Z, you'll get it on the 16th. But what happens for the grocery stores and supermarkets, they are very, very busy for 14 days. And then the other 14 days, it's very, very slow because everyone has one out of their food stamps. And so it's very hard for the efficiencies and operations of supermarkets to operate well with this current policy. And so what's really exciting is that this fall, we are actually going to see a change to this. We're going to see SNAP extended up to up to 20 days over time. It's going to be incremental. And this really will influence the retailer most. You still will be receiving SNAP once a month, same as before, but that it will be distributed over 20 days rather than for your 11-day slot. And this will really help with supermarkets with their efficiencies. And we were helping the state look at different analyses across the country of what is the best target, and 20 is really the best way um, to achieve this goal. But also, back to what Amanda was talking about, is educating the communities. I think a lot of folks eat a lot of processed foods. How to shop healthy. You know, when you talk about bringing the supermarkets and extending it for 20 days, showing people how to do a grocery list, showing people how to do meal preparations. And again, you look at the tools that's within a community and um, you utilize those tools because what I see are a lot of young adults who grew up on cheap foods and they don't know how, but there's no tool to show them how. Right. So, you know, when we did a farmer's market, we had cooking demonstration. I was amazed to see the mother, young mother said, I want to learn how to cook whole wheat pasta. But we have to look at what is lacking. And, and I think part of that is that people often when they make these policies, what you just said made me think of something that don't take into account that people who live in poor working class communities know what they want. Mm-hmm. It's not that people don't know what they want. Yes, we, we right. often hear the argument that the stores <laughs> don't offer healthy foods because the communities don't want them. But we know from our research at the Center for a Livable Future that people actually do want healthy foods and maybe don't feel empowered to ask for them or just assume that even if they ask, they're not going to get them. But they do enjoy, as she said, people do ask for this and want help. They want to know more. So, I mean, so... so uh, uh, when you talk about retail, and I'm going to come back to some other issues as well, but when you, come, when you talk about retail for a moment, I mean, we had it's apples and oranges mm-hmm. closed. So, and it was interesting that, that 
before Santoni closed the supermarkets, he came into the studio. We talked, and we were talking about his supermarket, and because he was part of the delivery program for the city, right, mm. to bring food to the elderly and more. He said to me that day on the, on the air, apples and oranges won't last a year. And I said, why? He said, because they won't sell the lottery, they won't sell cigarettes, and they don't sell sodas. And if you don't do that, you're not going to survive in the grocery business. You can sell everything else you want to sell, but you've got to have that as well if you're going to survive. Especially in low-income communities. They eat unhealthy. They play the lottery. You know, it's about educating and increasing access from the business and the retail perspective is key. But you have to extend it down to the folks that you want to go into these stores. Because, again, when we did the food assessment studies as a community leader, I was amazed to find out that the folks in my neighborhood was traveling to 29 different outlets just to have access. So, so, I, mean, so, but, but, so I guess and all that combined is to say that, that, I mean, it's not as simple as just having a healthy gro- a grocery store selling just healthy food. Right. I mean, because no matter where you are, I don't care if you go to the Giant in, 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 in Eddie's Roland Park or the Giant at the Rotunda or the Wegmans out in Sparks uh, in, in Cockeysville. Mm-hmm. I mean, they sell everything, which is why people go there. But <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's a role for like alternative, alternative food sources here, too. I think of farmers markets and <laughs> urban farms are a great way to expose city residents to how food is grown, what is healthy, how... What does a carrot look like when it comes out of the ground? And the city actually has a whole homegrown Baltimore initiative to um, encourage these activities, and that's part of this education piece. Um, so let me take some other aspects of this. this I mean, this, uh, this is, I think, that an issue that clearly you all seem to think is solvable. Is that fair to say? Do you think it's solvable? Going to take some work. Yeah, I'd say difficult but solvable. <laughs> so, so let's talk about what, how that what it means to be solvable. So when you talk about opening these markets um, in people's communities, the uh, the, our mar- the historical Baltimore market system, uh, which where people used to go fifty, sixty years ago, eighty years ago to buy their food. So, how does that get repopulated with with people who can make a living by selling their wares in a market? How does that happen? So um, Robert Thomas with the uh, Baltimore Public Market Corporation and also Lexington Market Corporation, they have really started to look at public markets and changing and looking at the type of vendors that sell at the market and the, um, and the types of foods that need to be there to really look at food access and the staple food supply, as well as being a place for uh, local residents to be able to sell local products that they may make or sell and so forth. So it's really the beginning of a conversation in the food desert retail strategy. This is the first time where we really said the public markets can be a part of eliminating and reducing food deserts. And so that's one of the new pieces. We've been working with the public markets on healthy carryout strategies and kids' menus. And now, even with Lexington Market Master Planning, we're looking at vendor makeup. We're looking at what is being sold at the market. So the, the question is for, the, for that for me would be, given I know how, how the marketplace works, can a vendor in a market sell food at a price that people can afford in the community? They did it when I was a kid. Right. And right. the public market. But can they do it now is the question in today's, I in think today's it, market? I mean, 
You know, Wegmans can do it. McDonald's can do it. Uh, the 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 the, the um, Walmart can do it because they have volume and they sell inexpensive but organic food. This is when you. What is lacking in a lot of low-income communities, for me, is awareness. You know, you have to kind of educate that young mother or that young family to say, this is what you need to do. I've done it in Operation Reach Out Southwest. I've done it with folks. You need to show people that, you know what, a dollar twenty-nine for some squash can last you two meals. So it, it, there are ways, and I feel being a, a part of this whole new movement is a piece that has been missing because, as you said earlier, folks sit in a boardroom and say, we're going to give them this, and then when they don't want that. So if you incorporate and do it in different ways and get different strategies, again, I'm a, Emerson Village just opened up a farmer's market on a Saturday morning. We tried in, you know, southwest Baltimore. But for the last couple of Saturdays, I've been going up there. It's been booming business. Pigtown opened up a farmer's market. Not as many vendors, but folks are coming out. So you have to get the message out. You just can't keep doing it and having a big fanfare, you know. You have to do it at the grassroots level. No, absolutely. And, yeah, and yeah. Talking to yeah. community residents, they often... It's interesting. Um, one of the questions in a, some of the community food assessments we've done is, you know, do you care about local food? And they did, but they really wanted it to come from their neighborhood or, you know, like so-called hyper-local. But I think they would they have even more interest when it comes from an urban farm and they're in their neighborhood and they'd be willing to try those foods and maybe, you know, experiment with different prices, um, but I, it, there's, a, there's a definite interest there in supporting that kind of a movement. So, so go ahead, Holly. I have a question. I'm sorry. So I do want to talk about homegrown Baltimore with farmer's markets. We have 18 farmer's markets in the city, and we have 12 of them except SNAP food stamps, and eight of them have double incentive dollars. So you spend $10, you get $10 more for at the market for incentives, so for more fruits and vegetables. So say on this Sunday you go to the Baltimore Farmer's Market and Bazaar and you bring your independence card, your SNAP, and you can go spend $10 using your card and you will get $10 more to your card to spend at that market. And so it's really a two-for-one. And this strategy has been very, very effective for attracting residents who may not be used to coming to farmer's markets and shopping and may have the perception that it is very, very expensive. And this is a sure way that it is not um, and that they have an opportunity to buy other foods they would not necessarily buy. And so it's been one of the strategies that with our partners and the Maryland Farmer's Market Association has had seen a lot of um, – has expanded quite a bit. Joyce? And I, I've seen that work up in the Park Heights market. You know, you get the bonus bucks or whatever the the name of it is now. And folks who really want to try kohlrabi, but they don't want to waste their food stamps on it, they're going to take that free money, as we call it in <laughs> low-income communities, and try it. And then, you know, you have that incentives because I have this extra. So you're looking at how to get people to really try alternatives or different things that they didn't grow up on. I'm speaking with Holly Freistadt, Baltimore City Food Policy Director, the Office of Sustainability, Amanda Prozinski, Mapping Program Manager at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and Joy Smith, Community Liaison with the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. And you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future right here on The Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. 
and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, 90.7 FM, WSDL. Take a brief break. Don't go away. When we come back, the rest of Soundbites. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. And you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We're talking about a report released last week by the City of Baltimore. Baltimore Development Corporation, the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and the Baltimore City Department of Planning. It's the 2015 Food Environment Map Report, a resource meant to inform public policy planning around food in Baltimore, particularly to improve access to healthy and affordable food for people who live in food deserts. Joining us to discuss this report are Holly Freistadt, Baltimore City Food Policy Director at the Office of Sustainability, Amanda Brzezinski, Mapping Program Manager at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and Joy Smith, who's Community Liaison for the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. So, and a bit further about this local idea. I mean, so so the question becomes, you know, the people who have started urban farms, um, for the most part, are not feeding people in Baltimore. I mean, they are feeding restaurants in Baltimore, right? And high yep. and and high end and, and 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 like that, uh, and high end places exactly. And so the question is, so what changes that dynamic? And the only models I, only model I can really see that works and how that would expand in Baltimore, I don't know, but we should talk about it, uh, is in Park Heights, where there is an urban farm that is run by a nonprofit where they have a CSA that people can afford for from 5 to 15 30 bucks a month. People can be in that CSA and get a boatload of vegetables and work on the farm and learn how to cook in the process. They do all that in Park Heights. And it's one of the most unique programs in the United States that I've seen because I've interviewed urban farmers um, from Mr. Allen up in Milwaukee to all over this country and they're all, even with all the best intentions, they're farming for the wealthy. They're farming for the top-end restaurants. They're not farming for the people. So if part of the idea of having urban farms is actually help feed the people of the community to buy local food, how do we create that system? Well, it, I Not an say, easy question. I'm just throwing it out there. No, it's it's a challenge. And, well, I'll say first off that it's difficult to make money in agriculture generally. Yes. So it's a challenge for all farmers. But um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the farms in the city are trying to sell to the neighborhood, and they're supplementing their income by also selling to restaurants. Real Food Farm has a mobile market, uh, the truck that they drive around and sell their produce, but they also sell to restaurants, and they try to make up the difference. Um, and so I think there's kind of a mixed mixed market approach where they can sell to wealthier uh, you know, clients like the high-end restaurants, but also have a real focus on selling to the community as well. 
Jump in, please. But And for me, Park Heights is one of the places that really do what I think needs to happen, especially in your urban communities. Another, I'm, uh, when I did uh, CSA through Hopkins, the Center for Livable Futures, we did one straw farm. The uh, center paid for the CSA, but I sold the food in a farmer's market fashion. And folks walked by for two or three weeks. But by the third week, and whatever item, the watermelon was the really big seller and the yellow cauliflower. So folks started coming in, and one woman, she says, oh, you have dinosaur kale, and this is how much you're charging? I pay four ninety nine a pound at Whole Foods, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just selling it for two fifty a bunch. Good for you. So, you know, <laughs> you look at how to really... And right. like you say, it's not a big money maker, but I don't think we plan enough time and to see the change. We want to see change in three years, and it doesn't really happen in three years. No, but, but the question is how you incentivize um, nonprofit activist commu- community organizations to take the Park Heights model and expand it where people actually are being paid to work on the farm and make a living and selling the food to people in the community – you know, and they want to develop a chicken farm, and they want to develop an orchard, and they want to develop um, um, a, a fishery. I mean, all those things are possible. So, how do you, I mean? To me, that's part. That's part of the key to changing what we're facing. So, part of the solution, but not all of it, is the urban farm tax credit that was just passed, and so that's really to help urban farmers. And when I def- let me define urban farmers for you, so that is someone who is trying to make a livelihood, ideally full time primarily off of the farm itself. It's not the hobby farmer, um, but it's really trying to be a full-time farmer. And that this um, incentive or tax credit would really allow them to be able to grow um, with reduced costs to the land if they meet certain criteria. So that's one part of the solution. But I think when you look at growing your own food, you also we have um, 15 urban farms in the city. Uh, we have a city land leasing initiative where we have over six acres um, leased on city land to be able to grow food. Um, and these are all parts. And then we have around 75 food-producing community gardens. Then you have your school gardens and great kids' farms. I think it's a combination. And your hoop houses, I think we have over 40 right now. It's a combination of all these different ways of growing food. But we also have to look at who's buying it and is there a market for our farmers. And one thing that the city did last year is we actually – in our wellness policy for different labor unions, um, CSAs became an approved use for certain labor unions. So if you are a MAPS employee, it's one of the labor unions, you already were getting a $250 um, wellness incentive, You know whether it was for your eyeglasses or to be able to incentivize exercise and so forth, but food was not allowed. Now, CSAs, only CSAs, are allowed to be able to increase fruit and vegetable consumption and support urban farmers. And the intention, or local farmers as well, and the intention here is that over time, maybe more businesses will join with this policy and that our urban farmers will have a direct market share um, to other employees nearby. So what has to fuel this? You know, I'm I'm saying the, the ideas are incredible. And I and I'm and I think that Holly, the, the work that your office does is is amazing, and I think that you are ahead of a lot of other cities in what you all are trying to do, and I think that's really very critical, and I, and I, mean, I mean that in all sincerity, and I think that. But the question is, what has what fuels us to make it leap to where it needs to be? What's the political, social content, and and fiscal content that has to make this happen? Go ahead, Joyce, and then we can go around the room. 
Well, for me, it's such as what Holly has said, you, know, you have to look at your health care providers. You even have to look at how, you know, uh, funds are being dispersed. Um, when she said the CSAs are part of the u labor unions, so you look at what families are there. Uh, my health insurance allowed for me to get a gym membership, so I'm going to call them and see if I can get in the CSA and making those type things aware because – until she just said this, I'm like, I have family members that have really nice jobs. Go see if you can get this stuff and get it written off, especially if you have some type of health concern. I just feel, for me, one of the tools is spreading the words, again, from top to bottom, from bottom to top. Because a lot of times it comes from the top and it kind of mellows out before it gets to the bottom. And my answer is really in partnership. Yeah. It mm -hmm. has to be partnership. It is city partnership. It is, you know, city, state, federal. It is every academic institution that can work with us. It is every community member and community organization. It's nonprofits. This is not something that any one entity can tackle or address. But together, we can really start to address it. And Amanda? Absolutely. We need, I, um, as Holly's mentioned, some of these policy changes, we need those to incentivize people and we need the awareness to grow on the consumer end. Um, you know, we can make all these policies all we want, but if people don't know about them or aren't educated on how to use them, they're not going to use them. So we need to approach things from both ends, which, as Holly said, it really happens in partnership. So in, in, in looking at how this works, one of the, let me just add another element here and see what you all think. I mean, one of the things, the feedback I've been getting on this program and interviews here in the studio and in the community at large um, has been that the city, foundations, and more don't listen to what the people in the community are saying. And that the leadership for this, the ideas, the management of this can be inside the community itself and not always coming from the top down to make something like this work. Well, you know I agree with that. You know, and everybody, you know, just being a voice, when I was asked, I was, wasn't going to participate in a uh, conference not too long ago, and because I was asked at the conference to participate, I was, like, overwhelmed. So it has to come. I mean, you can sit and plan in an office all day long, and it may sound really good, to those that are around, but how are we going to see the changes? Because folks who are putting out their money, the first thing, if they don't get the results, they will say, see, it didn't work, but did we implement all the strategies that are needed to make it doable? So I do think us. that we have been working on the community food assessments and really trying to hear the voice of sustainability plan. Um, a lot of the planning process is to hear the community voice. But I think we have to also understand there's different levels of engagement and change. So when you're looking at a healthy corner store, one corner store, four corner stores in a very specific region, that must have strong community leadership um, implementation, and they should be really running and organizing so many pieces. And we are seeing those changes. But when you look at my job, and I am a shop of two people, maybe three, depending on the grant funding you day. Be a dozen or more, but I, I am looking right. at the policies. What are the big things that are stopping food access from happening in this city? What are the policies that are changing the corner stores or different pieces that if, I, if we could relieve that or make it easier, then all these programs could be successful. But if we don't address some of these policies, then it feels like banging your head on the wall sometimes. And I used to do a lot of program organizing and a lot of food access, and I'm now in policy because I felt like I was banging my head, do these great projects 
projects, and it's like building a castle on the shoreline, and they would be wiped off in a second because the policy wasn't supporting it. So we really need to see all of it, community engagement along with strong, you know, well-engaged policy. And as a community leader, I really agree with that. It has to be the policy issues. Amanda, final thought here. Just want to add to you know at the center's role here in all of this is to conduct research that you know and get information into the hands of people that can use it, um, but we try to also give back to the communities we work with. For community food assessments, when we conduct surveys, we train community members to conduct those surveys. So then they are now uh, more educated and more engaged in these issues and can share that knowledge with others instead of just going in doing a study and leaving. We, and then we try to also give them the results and um, really use it as a partnership and engagement process, not just um, a researcher coming in and studying something and then taking off. So the centers is going to continue doing community food assessments. We're looking for communities to come to us. Um, we don't want to assume that a community needs that, but we, if they express interest, we'll, we'll do that with them. And, of course, we're going to continue partnership with the city. So I want to thank you all. You just heard Amanda Brzezinski, who is Mapping Program Manager at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, Joyce Smith, Community Liaison for the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, working out of Southwest Baltimore, but all over. Holly Freistadt, who is the Baltimore City Food Policy Director, Office of Sustainability. Good to have three of you with us, and we'll continue this conversation, and congratulations to Baltimore uh, for being the head of the game here. We'll continue pushing this. Thank you all so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. I don't eat no meat. No dairy, no sweets, only ripe vegetables, fresh fruit and whole wheat. I'm from the old school, my household smell like soul food, bruh. Curry falafel, barbecue tofu, no fish, no, no candy bars, no cigarettes, only ganja, fresh squeezed juice from oranges. Exercising daily to stay healthy, and I rarely drink water out the tap because it's filthy. In May, New Zealand changed its animal welfare amendment bill to state that animals are sentient beings. This means that the citizens of New Zealand must recognize all animals as sentient and their owners and handlers must attend to their welfare. The bill also made it illegal to experiment on animals for testing and cosmetic research. And two weeks ago, we talked about animal rights with Brenda Sanders, executive director of Better Health Life Organization and co-organizer of the Vegan Soul Fest and director of the Open Cages Alliance, an animal advocacy group in Baltimore, and Nigel Wright who's also co-organizer of the Vegan Soul Festival and co-owner of the Land of Kush restaurant. Today we're hearing the second part of that conversation. Enjoy. Um, and both of you are e-vegans. Put that up front because you have a very <laughs> serious view of this. And um, But one of the things that you... I'm not just talking about what this means in terms of animal rights in this country. And, you know, let me start with you, Brendan, and Najwa, jump right in. In the green room, you and I were talking about the animal rights movement. And and it's a very complex movement. I mean, none of us want to see these pictures of the reality of animals being tortured, whether they're being tortured for mass industrial farming of food or whether they're being tortured uh, as lab animals or whether they're being tortured by being forced to fight and, and just the personal abuse of animals. I mean, all of, all of that is hard for most of us to take. But let me just start here. That a lot of the animal rights organizations in the past um, have a really strange right-wing, almost fascistic element to that. Um, I said earlier that, that a lot of Adolf Hitler's closest advisors were vegans. Hmm. You know, so I mean, 
that doesn't mean vegans are fascists or Nazis mm-hmm. or you thank know, you, Mark. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, but I'm, <laughs> you know, and they loved animals. And they were animal rights activists. Mm. You know, so I mean, th- th- those kind of contradictions exist. Um, yeah, you know, as you get deeper into the psyches of a lot of animal rights activists that do not include myself, by the way, um, you start to see uh, this misanthropy that. Um, exists within the minds of animal rights activists. They've seen so much. They've experienced so much of the pain that that humans are capable of um, inflicting on animals that there's this certain level of human hatred, you know, hatred for the human um, uh, uh, existence that, that comes into play. Um, and I could certainly see that happening with, with anybody who's dealing day in and day out with the the horrible abuse that 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 um, humans are um, are heaping on animals. And, and it is bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. There there probably is no other group of, of sentient beings on the planet that you know has suffered as much as the animal kingdom. Um, but be that as it may. We we really it, it's 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 hard to make those kinds of um, um, connections because then when we start to make those kinds of connections as animal rights activists, it starts to become offensive, you know. And when you compare um, animal suffering to human suffering, it becomes offensive a lot of times for the marginalized peoples who are dealing with oppression right now. Hmm. And so um, a lot of times you will have people. Um, get get very upset at references, say like that PETA makes. PETA PETA is the um, is people for the ethical, ethical treatment, treatment of, of animals, animals. Right. Um, and, and PETA is the organization that a lot of people point to as the animal rights movement um, mm. because they're mm-hmm. so big, and, and it basically means that they just have lots and lots of money. Right. I mean, that's what that's what it boils <laughs> down to. to that, that capitalism, right? <laughs> money, <laughs> exactly. And a lot of their campaigns are very problematic. A lot of their campaigns involve um, imagery that shows um, enslaved, chained black people alongside, um, you know, right. caged animals, and and because of the history um, of racism that many people, you know, especially in this country um, and, and you know, being likened to animals and almost um, having to compete with animals during slavery, um, you know, and being hunted down by animals and just like this whole antagonistic relationship even today where cops are using animals to intimidate and, and harm mm-hmm. human beings. Like, yeah, that those kinds of, of feelings of, of animosity are going to crop up, but does that invalidate the fact that these are sentient beings that are deserving of um, uh, of us um, seeing their lives as valuable? No, I don't think it does. That was deep. It, no, it was. No, it was. So, so, no when, she, uh, when she's talking about the, the, the comparing it to um, the oppressed people that have been enslaved, and I won't just say black people because there were a lot of folks that were enslaved and them being compared to animals, well, that's what they looked at, the oppressed people, as animals. So I can see why they're making those comparisons. Is it right or wrong? You know, I would be offended by it, but, you know, that's why they're making those comparisons. Um, You know, it, it just goes back to with the New Zealand law, what does it all mean and what is it going to do? Because New Zealand, what, their they're number, number one export is milk. So what does that mean? Are and they going to change, and lamb, right? right. Are they going to change anything that they're doing? Or are they going to do things differently? You see, you see what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm really not impressed because I, I, <laughs> what are they going to do differently now that 
this law or amendment to the bills in effect. I, I just, I'm but not. Could it, could, it, could it mean, I mean, I, I was thinking about this. I know this doesn't sit well with people who, everybody who's a vegan, but, 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 um, but it, it maybe has to do with not allowing industrial farms not, and, and having, allowing animals to range free and not being fed antibiotics. I mean, you know, I know when you slaughter an animal in the Muslim tradition, and the Jewish tradition, but it's even more intense in the Muslim tradition. You're supposed to literally stop, calm the animal down, look that animal in the eyes, hold its head, and then cut its throat. Now, cutting its throat, when you even say that, I mean... So organized crime, is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm saying because, to, because you have a relationship with that animal. Hmm. And it's not just I have a relationship holding with you, it. Brenda, and I have to kill you. <laughs> you know, you know, Mark, I, I don't get it. Well, well, and here's the thing: I saw a, I saw a Facebook meme. Uh, you know, people come up with these really, you know, uh, clever memes <coughs> on Facebook, and and it basically said, you know, to to treat somebody well and to show them consideration right before you kill them is what psychopaths do. <laughs> I mean, and and it really hit me. It really hit me. I was like, wow, you know, like, like, and there in this whole humane meat movement um, is huge. I mean, Whole Foods is rolling in the dough right now because, you know, humane meat. Well, but that's that's, like, is that real? No, but (laughs) but people believe that it is. Um, (laughs) and, And I understand why, because factory farms are horrific torture chambers they they really are and so anything you know for a lot of people they just feel like anything is better than that you know when they find out about the mutilation and the torture and the 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 close quarters and the, you know all of those things they're like just anything but that and so yeah for a lot of people they feel like you know the the more humane way of treating the animals before um taking their lives um is better than the factory farming and you know but but if you were to like transfer that over to humans it probably wouldn't transfer as well you know and, you know but like we're all sentient beings now right under this new, law, but, but under just, this new amendment right like, so like you could you could look at it and say well you know he didn't rape her he only like molested her you know mm, what I mean semantics. and I mean and and you know so so but he didn't he, he didn't go so far as to you know like completely violated I mean, just a little bit he just violated a little bit you know and then all of a sudden it, it takes on a whole different meaning when you're talking about human beings as opposed to the other beings but see that's all to, that's all in effect to protect what we just talked about the money you see what i'm saying people still have to make money yeah you know what i'm saying so the whole animal agriculture and you know whatever they have to do to get their money through the exploitation of the animals is still going to happen whether you're labeling it cage-free humane meat whatever we really don't know what's going on on those farms right i understand there's some caveats like they can have this and then it can be considered cage-free right you see what i'm saying so we don't really know what's going on yeah, yeah, and I guess when I look at this uh, as an omnivore, <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Mark. <laughs> and as someone who has hunted but doesn't hunt anymore, all right, mm. that's a step in the right direction. Well, <laughs> uh, now that I, I have no idea what that's all about. Hunting, hunting I could never well, hunting, figure that yeah, out. Especially well, hunting for pleasure, like hunting for sports. Not yeah, sport. just just for sports. No, or, not sport. uh, you not know, sport. I mean, if someone has to eat and that's the only thing they they're out there somewhere. No, they I, don't I, have, I wasn't after you know? putting antlers on my wall. Mm, okay. Um, 
No, I know. When I hunted, I hunted. The last time I hunted was with, and my friends still do, on the res. But why do they do with, that? With, what is, what is that? they eat it. That's okay. They get their meat. They go to the mountains, and they get elk, and they get sheep, and they get whatever they're shooting, and that's the meat on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and they you know, pick and grow their own vegetables, and the, pick wild vegetables and grow their own vegetables, but they also hunt. The last time I went hunting was hunting for elk on horseback up in the mountains of Wyoming with seven other guys who were all native men, and they were off getting their meat to bring home. So saying, I'm saying that only to say that I think there, that there, is, there can be a difference between how you approach the animal and think of the animal and the respect you have for an animal and forming them industrially and keeping them in close quarters and torturing them for the whole, their whole lives. I made up this bumper sticker once that said, "I'd rather be a a a, a fighting cock than a than a Purdue hen any day of the week." Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow! <laughs> yeah. Give me a fighting chance, but but, but right. I still know that doesn't doesn't work in the land of veganhood or veganism. Um, but I mean, but I, so I'm saying because I'm sure there's some feisty ones out there that like you know I'm 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 gonna go to the grave. You're not gonna kill me this way. I'm just. <laughs> But, but I mean, we don't know. We're not there, right. you know. But I'm we're sure not there. there's a lot I mean, of things. And, and, and I and I uh, so uh, you know when you when you come back to what you were talking about earlier, and you, you mentioned Michael Vick in a segment we did, um, that we did earlier before we wrap this up. I want to get your closing thoughts on this. I mean, um, you know, with a lot of folks in the black community, especially, were incensed when Michael Vick got the sentence that he got, mm-hmm. and saying that people who kill <clears throat> people don't get this mm-hmm. this kind of this this kind of pressure and attention, and, right? So, so as as vegans fighting for animal rights, as in the movement that you talked about earlier, being being um, in many ways having a lot of racist qualities in it, that you have to battle all the time as a woman of color and an animal rights activist, um, extend that off to the black community. That's that's a, an interesting argument to make for people, I mean, right? You know what I'm saying? Yes, it is. It is. Very. It is. And I don't approach it that way. For me. Um, you know, for me, veganism goes so much further than health. And, you know, a lot of people go vegan for health and, and it goes so much further even than animal rights. I think that for me, um, veganism goes to who I want to be on the planet. And that's the bottom line. What What is the legacy I want to leave behind? Who do I want to be right now? And And as far as animals and sentience goes for me, it comes down to three questions. Number one, do animals feel pain? And I think it's very obvious that animals do feel pain. You step on a dog's foot, they yell out, mm-hmm. you know, do they avoid this pain? Absolutely. You mm-hmm. step on an animal's foot, they pull back because they're, they want to avoid feeling this pain. Mm-hmm. So if animals feel pain and they avoid that pain, then that means that they have a will to not experience pain, i.e. a will to live. And me, as a human being, Right. Who has the choice? I can make the choice. I'm not a lion. You know, I'm not a bear. I'm not a hyena. As a human being, I can make the choice not to um, devalue the lives of animals so much that I infringe on their right to live and to have, you know, the quality of life that they want to have. That's who I choose to be on the planet. And a final thought from you, Najwa. My, my contribution is to my health, the animals, and the planet. So I'm looking at the overall picture. I mean, me and Brenda talked about this before, living in a bubble. Um, if anybody's ever saw um, the, the Lorax. <laughs> like, 
I don't want that to happen. So I'm looking at all three areas from ethics to um, environmental to health. So that's why I'm in this game. And I want to make sure that I'm an ambassador and promoter of this to everyone that I come in contact with and in touch with. So they know and they're educated on the whole scope of veganism. Well, it's, this is, we're going to do much more of this together. I always enjoy having you both in the studio, uh, all the issues that we talk about together and the work that you do in this community and for this community. Um, the last voice you heard was Nigel Wright, who is co-owner of Land of Kush and co-organizer of the Vegan Soul Fest, along with Brenda Sanders, who's the other co-organizer, which takes place September the 19th, 19th uh, this year. VeganSoulFest.com is the website. And Brenda Sanders is also executive director of Better Health, Better Life Organization, and one of the directors of Open the Cages Alliance. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank, Thank you, Mark, for having us. And we want to let you know about the exciting things happening next week here on Soundbites. We're going to bring you the first part of a town hall meeting I moderated in Baltimore City on food and jobs and how neighborhoods can become more self-sufficient. The town hall meeting took place in Sandtown, Winchester, which was at the center of the Baltimore uprising. and was the neighborhood where Freddie Gray lived and was arrested. He died while in police custody when he was only 25. I sat down with three members of the faith community who are all working on food issues in interesting ways in Sandtown, from holding large grocery store chains accountable for food they provide to Baltimoreans with limited access to fresh food, to putting people to work for the construction of fruit gardens that can feed their neighbors. Next week, right here on Soundbites on the Mark Steiner Show. Thanks for listening. The way to my heart is with the garlic clove. It smells hella sexy when it's on the kitchen stove. But red beans and rice, red beans and rice, red beans and rice. I could eat a plate twice. Red beans and rice, red beans and rice, red beans and rice. Make everything nice. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcast on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. Red beans and rice, red beans and rice, red beans and rice.